Okay, we'll make a start because it's time. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about spiritual journey. Um, it could well be that we actually learn more about ourselves and life and God um, in our dark days than we actually do in the light. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that on Saturday night. Uh, on Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon. Oh, shut up. So I want to use one scripture as a, as a route for um, what we want to say tonight. And it's in uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse, verse 8 and 9. This, I want to start here because this was a bit of a lifesaver for me 10 years ago. Um, when I was, um, well I was from a personal perspective wrestling with clinical depression. And um, trying to find my way out of some crises and difficulties that... that that I was trying to process in my own life. And um, this, this particular understanding became the, the foundation of a lifesaver for me. And I think it leads us into what I want to say about the, about the spiritual journey. So, um, so it says, um, what Sunday was? That's not the NIV 84, is it? Yeah, that's the wrong, that's the latest NIV, which is rubbish. Have you got the New King James? Because I don't... Yeah, that's, that's better. Yeah, I don't. The new NIV, I don't like it. 84 versions better. Yeah, this, this is really the terminology that I want because it helps us understand. Though he was a son, because he's talking about Jesus, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected or made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So there's, there's a few points I want to make from this just to help to set up what we need to talk about. And um, th these are the points from what you're reading up there. That he was a son. That it's very evident from this he needed to learn something. And that what it was he needed to learn, he, le he, he learned from what he suffered. Now, I, I just need to say something there. It doesn't say he learned it from suffering, because some of you will get off on a wrong tangent thinking that all suffering is good. He learned it from what he suffered. So I want to be clear about that right at the beginning, because in our spiritual journey, uh, we do too much generalizing and not enough personifying and so when we're talking about some of the struggles and the suffering, it's about what he suffered. It's what you are suffering yourself. It's what makes you suffer, which, which may or may not have a physical element to it. Mostly what we're talking about in the context of this growth and development is not to do with things like our physical body because they, you know, they break down anyway. We, we're human flesh. It's mostly to do with the things that we face that actually to us to me, to you, are a suffering in our life. We suffer those things. So, um, so he was a son. He needed to learn something. He learned it from what he suffered. And that something was obedience. Okay, He learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And uh, it says it was made perfect. I'm going to put other words in there. Perfect, whole, complete. Okay, Because again, I don't want you to get the idea that Perfection, if any of you have been raised around church, is not... Yeah, having been perfected. We, we tend to think of that in terms of not, quote, sinning, 
you know, uh, doing things wrong. But actually, that's not the implication here. The implication is wholeness, okay? So, so we've got to think that more in the context of, of once, he was, once he was made perfect or complete or whole, which is the objective of what we're talking about, um, he became. Now, it says there, he became the author of salvation to all who obey him. Um, my point there is that through this process, he became. He became something. He became something of significance, something of relevance. So there's something within the context of these two verses that 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 take us to where we can become something of significance. We can become who we're meant to be. So if we just look at that a little bit deeper, um, it, it's interesting because. Here we've got a clear indication, remember this is Jesus we're talking about, that, that once you say he learned something, then you don't learn something unless you lack something. Do you understand that? So this whole idea of the deity of Jesus being so complete that nothing was required is untrue. What this is really pointing us to is the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus that said even Jesus needed to learn something which indicates that there was a lack within him that without learning what it was he needed to learn, that lack would always remain. So, so to, to excuse ourselves or to excuse Jesus from the journey that we take would be to be, would be, to be irresponsible to the, to the Bible and irresponsible to the text because the essence of the text is never about portraying the divinity of Jesus it's about portraying the humanity of Jesus and it's all about him becoming fully human because we live in a human world and he was helping us to understand that being fully human when we embrace that we can become something that we never imagined we could be so so the need to learn indicates a lack lack indicates incompleteness and imperfection because it because it 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 actually uses in the term there, having been perfected. It's an, in, it's an incompleteness, okay? An incompleteness. Um, so, lack it, so um, blah, 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 blah. it indicates an incompleteness or imperfection, something lacking in the life of Jesus the man in the context of his development, despite the fact that he was a son. And what he had to learn, this development was critical to him moving forward, as a person. Now, what this clearly shows us is that there was never any question about him being a son of the Son of God. Now, I like the fact that Hebrews uses the term although he was a son, not although he was the son. Because once you substitute the word a son for the son, it means that he is only one of many and therefore is representative. So this is not just a story about what happened to the Son of God. It's what happened to a Son of God, which means it's what's necessary for me as a Son of God. Do you understand the context? It's very inclusive and, and sucking us in, in our humanity to his humanity, to take us on a little journey. So, so, so what, what, what was lacking in his life as a man in this context of development, was despite the fact that he was a son. But it was critical to him moving forward as a person. And whatever it was that he needed to learn would make him perfect or complete as a son. 
Now, this fascinated me, and this is why it brought such help and hope to me 10 years ago, um, was the issue that it was never in doubt that he was a son, right? Never in doubt. Though he was a son, the problem was that although he was a son, this, this is the way that, that I phrased it back then, that, that, that although he was completely a son, he was not complete as a son. Do you understand that? He was completely a son, never any doubt. He was absolutely a son, but he was not complete as a son. Therefore, it's possible to be a son and completely a son, as we all are, but not complete as a son, which many of us aren't. Do you understand that? Is that coming through? Okay. So this whole issue was not a question about, about the root and the context of your close relationship to the Father because you are a son. It's about the spiritual journey that makes us completely a son, right? Or complete as a son of which the lack was there of what it talks about learning obedience. So you would think that just being a son would be enough just in itself. Okay? But the suggestion here is that he was completely a son, but not complete as a son. Now, one of my reasons for pushing a little bit on, on Sunday again to try and pull a few more of you in on a Wednesday is not because we're just looking for a bigger crowd. That, that is just not the... You know, if we were looking for a bigger crowd, there's lots of things I wouldn't do. There's lots of things we wouldn't have done here if we were just looking for a bigger crowd. That's not, you know... That's not the issue. The reason that I wanted to pull some of you in is because if what we're reading here is true, then just being a son is not enough in itself. Now, it's enough to secure your relationship with the Father, but it's not enough to make you fully human. It's not enough to bring out of you all that needs to come out of you so that you can be perfected, complete, whole, and to become what you need to become. So, so this, is the, this is the context of, um, of these two verses. Now, now, I think it's clear that the terminology and the phraseology here in the text make it clear that this is about his, human, his humanity and not his deity. And I think that's very, very important. I think there has been far too much talked about Jesus' deity and not enough talked about Jesus' humanity. And of course, how that translates is that the whole purpose of becoming a Christian, getting saved, being born again, whatever your terminology, is to get your sins forgiven and go to heaven. And uh, we can become some of the most ineffective human beings on the face of the planet. Um, in terms of humanity, I'm jealous of my neighbour. Uh, and yet he would not claim to be a believer, he wouldn't be a claim to be a Christian, but now I actually believe he's a son. That's my personal belief. And I believe that if whoever loves is born of God, then, then hey, you know, you don't even need to send a jury out on that one. Um, now, of course, I was raised that, oh, well, that's all good works and it doesn't count, but that's not actually totally consistent with the biblical narrative about what reveals and releases us as a son of God. So, so in, in, this, in, this, um, in this whole thing, I, I think we, we sometimes miss the fact that, 
that the great emphasis of Jesus' humanity was to release us in our humanity so that we can be fully one with ourselves and fully one with God and that into our world and in our world we can experience what, what Jesus taught in his prayer when he said, your kingdom come, his kingdom now. And I'll, I'll give you a little definition about kingdom a little bit, a little bit later on. So, if, um, if he needed to learn obedience, the question is, did that mean that he had been disobedient or had a desire to be so? You see, you have to analyse this. If he had to learn obedience, it meant that there was something about obedience that he was not manifesting at that time. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to learn it, would you? Right? So he had to learn something that he was not manifesting. Now, of course, again, the problem comes down to words. Once we use the word obedience, we, we can only think down one track because of our black and white, right and wrong thing, which is, you know, obey, disobey. You obey a command. So we, we think of it in very narrow, very narrow terms. But we have to ask in this term, does it mean then that Jesus had been disobedient because he needed to learn obedience? Does it mean that he had a desire to be disobedient because he had to learn obedience? Or, or does the answer to that question lie in how we interpret the word obedience? So was the writer meaning obedience to a command or an instruction, which would be how most of us would think of obedience? Or was he meaning obedience to a process? And what I mean by that is the willingness to embrace a process as the means of producing a conclusion which can be arrived in by no other way. So it's the obedience to, to grabbing hold of what it is that is going on and in embracing that, allowing that to work something in me, which as I said there, the willingness to embrace a process as a means of producing a conclusion which can be arrived at in no other way. There are some conclusions I really believe can be arrived at in no other way than embracing the situation as it is. Not fighting it, not resisting it, because it goes on to say that he learned obedience through the things, by the things which he suffered. So this is not actually talking about the cross or the crucifixion. It's talking about the learning process in the life of Jesus that allows his full humanity to be understood and expressed in its connection with God and with the world. But this statement that actually it was learned through suffering. Now, again, the problem is with suffering. We think of suffering always as sickness or disease or famine, those kind of broader things. Um, but most of us won't be touched by all of them. Some of us will be touched by some of them in varying degrees. And, and, and yeah, we, we're compassionate towards how those sufferings manifest. And they also become part of our journey of how we connect our heart to God, how we see the world in, in the context of that. But, but for most of us, the, the greatest sufferings that we have have got very little to do with illness or famine or lack. It's the sufferings we have when we get friction in a relationship. It's the suffering we have when we encounter something we can't handle and, 
and, and depression or disillusionment begins to bite. It's, it's the suffering of, of things not going the way we'd like them to go. The suffering of not being able to have what it was that we would like to have. And those things create a massive suffering within us. And, and, and the issue is we have such an issue with mental health, not because of physical ailments... And not because there's a lack of food in the country, not because there's a repressive regime, but we have so much problem with mental health because people cannot handle the sufferings to allow those sufferings to become the means by which you become because we don't know how to deal with our humanity in the context of sufferings. And yet the truth is, sufferings are not going to disappear. You know, I, I, could, I could isolate... Half a dozen things tonight that make me suffer. Just in the course of a single day, half a dozen things that make me suffer. But you see, I have to learn that I learn obedience through the things which I suffer. It's not that they dominate and crush me, but I have to embrace them in such a way to realize that they can take me on a journey to wholeness because that's what this whole thing is about. And then we have a coming to perfection, a coming to... To wholeness. So, so if the writer wasn't meaning it as a commander instruction and he's meaning it more as the willingness to embrace a process as the means of producing a conclusion which can be arrived at in no other way, then the elements of learning become like the modules in a course of education. And um, this, this would be a lot of my point. I think sometimes if, if you take a group of school children and say to them, do you want to go to school? What percentage take-up do you going to think you're going to get in the positive? Now, on the other hand, then, if you said, okay, do you like to go to school? You know, if they're anything like Riley, um, you're going to get a negative response, although he does well and he settles in. Now, have you ever wondered why we legislate for people to be in education? Why do we make it a law that you cannot leave education until you're 18 years old? It used to be 12 and then 13, 14, 15, 16, now it's 18. Why have we legislated that, that children and young people must be in school? Because if it was left to our own choice, we wouldn't go. Because we would feel that we can sort this out ourselves, we can figure this out ourselves, we don't need any help. Now, I would translate that into the issue also of spiritual learning and our spiritual journey. It's the same discipline that we have to engage in the context of our desire to learn something, but it's a bit like school. It's not about do you want to, do you like to. We have to ask the question, is it a necessary factor that we don't legislate on, but when you look at the wider world, the government legislates on it and says, you have to go get this learning because without it, we think you will be deficient in how you understand the world. Hence some of my passion for why we still need to push ourselves to, to learn because we can learn something and become something. So... Suffering can mean many things to many people at different times. We've talked about that. The sufferings are the challenges posed to me by the issues of life. That's what we mean by the suffering. The challenges posed to me by the issues of life. The level of my learning is measured by the nature and intensity of my response to those issues. So the level of my spiritual development will be measured 
by the nature and intensity of my response to those issues, okay? Now, we'd all like to have an environment where we drug one another and forget those, but actually, the reality of humanity is that we need to be equipped to deal with those issues. So, let's, let's move this through, and then I'm going to put something on the board. True obedience is the embracing of the process by which God in life is trying to complete you as a son, so you become a source of the God kind of salvation as well as a receiver. So our life's journey could be described from its beginning as birth, ascent, plateau, descent, and death. So, you know, one thing we read the other day is, you know, one thing we can all be sure of, none of us are getting out of here alive. Uh, now, of course, we might differ on our theology on that, but you get what it means. Now, now I, would, I would retitle death a little softer and say that we go from birth to rebirth. Now, that's not, that's not, a, um, that's not a shout out for reincarnation. It's actually a shout out for truth that I believe we go from birth to rebirth. I, I don't think that our closing our eyes and ceasing to breathe is, uh, is the end of it all. I think it's a rebirth of something else. That's not our conversation tonight, but I, I believe that. So, so it makes sense, therefore, to say that our spiritual journey follows this model and that to be whole or complete, we must become obedient to what it is that the challenges throw up for us. So... So, if we kind of put that on here, I would, I would say life is a little bit like this. So, life goes like this, and then we hit a plateau, and then it goes like this, okay? I'm going to add some bits in. So, if this is our birth, and seeing as you were all born, I will assume that you are in this, and I'm going to put this as rebirth, not death, because that's what I sincerely believe. Okay, rebirth, okay? Now, I want to put another couple of little bits on here because this is the line, a journey that we're going to walk. Now, the problem is that line can also go like that. And the other problem is this line can also go like that, which we'll address as we talk about this. So, so um. Some of this I, uh, I stole from Richard Raw, um, but then I've amended it. But it was just some of the some of the points of this are, um, I think, very helpful to us. So, at this part of life, this this part of life, um, we're going to call that the stage of ascent. Okay, because this is all about from birth. How many of you, you recognise that when babies are born, they immediately start to grow? And they immediately start to increase in their motor skills and their understanding and linguistics. And, and then there comes a point that they stop. Which is good, because otherwise we'd have like a lot of people who were about 57 feet tall. Um, you know, isn't it amazing how, how the growth of the the human body switches off at, at the right time. Now, for some of you, think it switched off a foot too early or, or carried on 20 pounds too late. You know, I, I mean, that's, uh, 
that's part of it, but, but it switches off. We, we reach a point where that, that switches off. Now, it would make sense for me to, to understand that, that in the design of our spiritual progress, there is a similar thing that is, is happening to us. And I think from my experience of my first introductions to, to Christianity and Christ and what we believe was salvation is that is that there is this kind of unrestrained growth and excitement, much, much like a child, you know, who is not worried about, about whether North Korea is going to give up its um, nuclear weapons, you know. A child is not going to worry about that. So, so there's a period in our lives when, when as children, we're growing and, and there are things that don't concern us and don't worry us. Now, of course, there are other things that start early on and Again, we talked a little bit about some of that in the context of love on, on, on Sunday this week. But, but in the main, you know, we, we talk about the innocence of childhood. And, uh, of course, it's all about learning and the world is an exciting place. And, uh, um, you know, the, the danger is, of course, that when we get up to this phase, we start losing some of that. That The world's not quite as safe and as wonderful as we thought that it was because we start encountering on a greater level of understanding suffering and as as our relationships develop and grow and as our field of connection grows and as the requirements on our life grow then then a lot of this this just childish you know uh, just care about today it kind of disappears doesn't it you know you you kind of and, and you get the worries and cares and and considerations so so on this, I want to call this what 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 Roe calls it, um, which I'll explain it in a moment. But he, he calls it the heroic journey, and I, I I was going to change this, but I thought I won't because I'm too lazy. No, actually, I thought I won't change it because I get what he's talking about. You know, as we kind of start this journey, we, we're kind of the hero of our own story. Um, the world centers around us. It centers around who we are and what we do and how we're developing. And the whole world is a stage around us. It's, a, it's, a, it's our heroic journey. It's the hero growing. And, and, and this usually happens about between the ages of, of, of um, 1 and 30 Let's call it 32 for the sake of argument. So, so what we've actually got going on here is, is really this, what, what, what Rohr also calls it at one time, the first half of life. Um, which is different to the second half of life. And those, those of us who, who have transcended this, this age by a few years... Um, understand that, that there is another part of life, there's a different part of life that we, we have to negotiate. But there are principles about this. It's not just about, you know, oh, well, I'm, I'm under 32, so I'm just on this, so I don't care, you know. Uh, I'm trying to save you some problems because this actually is an image that shows up in how we handle life in general. So on the, on the heroic journey, let, let, let me say some of the things that come there. It's a time of many dreams. It's a time of being idealistic. You're going to change the world. And 
it's also a time of being egocentric. In that, like, like we said on Sunday about the baby, the whole world revolves around the baby. Everybody is there to serve the child. And if you carry that through into life and into spirituality, then you're going to have a lot of problems. You're going to have a lot of struggles. And you're always just going to be looking for somebody who will mother you. You'll never grow up. You'll always be childish. Never grow up to understand what real love is and what real community is. Um, there's also a lot of self, what I would call self-sculpting going on there. We are, we are shaping our life by our own imaginations and thoughts and, and longings. You know, and it's the whole thing of, of you know, asking kids and young people, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, it's a silly question because some of them are never going to grow up. So, first of all, you should sort out the ones who might look as though they're possibly going to grow up. But some people never grow up. And that's part of this line here, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but we do that because it's, there's, there's all this stuff going on that is, you know, is, is, is sculpting and shaping our lives. Now, I believe this is also the case in the first instances of our spiritual awareness, even if we don't know it's spiritual awareness, our imaginations about the world, our thoughts, our desires, our dreams for the world. You know, especially if you're going to enter Miss World or any of those competitions, of course, the answer to, you know, what do you want the most is world peace. Just remember that in case any of you are ever in a beauty pageant, world peace is the answer. So on this, on this line of ascendancy, there's also a, a darker side to that, which I also want to point out, because in this, in this period, there are also those who have been controlled. There are also those who have been dominated, uh, who have had imposed ideals rather than developed ideals that someone else said you have to be. And um, very often these are problems if you are raised in a, you know, for those of us who were raised a certain way, in a more fundamentalist, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist environment, ideals are imposed upon you. Uh, there's not a lot of freedom of thought. Freedom of thought is suppressed, but it doesn't seem like the freedom of thought is being suppressed because in this heroic journey, you simply put your heroism into whatever it was you were told you were supposed to do. So, you know, for me, heroism was being in every, every meeting at church, which was not twice a week. Right? It was three times on a Sunday, morning, night, Sunday school in the middle. It was three times in the week, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Saturday night, and it was leading house groups Monday and Wednesday, and it was shopping on Friday. Now, I'm not proposing that as some sense of high spirituality. I'm saying they, they were ideals that were imposed that we felt in order to be accepted and be part of the thing you had to do. So those imposed ideals, but nevertheless, within those ideals, you still have a heroic journey. You become the hero of that. It becomes about how much you can do, how, how much you can serve, how much you can give. And, and of course, the objective in all of that is, is to become recognized and seen as somebody significant. But at the end of the day, one of these things that happens here is you have to realize that some of those ideals have been imposed ideals. I've, I've told you about one of my fears of myself in ministry. Uh, comes from the fact that, that um, I, and I love my parents. Sometimes I talk about my parents. They were brilliant parents. I love them to bits. They were fabulous. They did the best that they knew to do. 
and they have absolutely no complaints. They were wonderful. But you can also objectively look at some things and say, I can see what was happening there. And um, uh, my parents were not very demonstrative in terms of, of giving praise. Um, so it was, all, it was all kind of restrained, you know, uh, well done. You know, if, if you, you know, you come in with your, your what was then GCE all-level results or whatever, uh, you've done really well and it's well done, but just be careful as you go out that you can still get your head through the door. Well, all I've done is shown you my exam results, but it was like this, this, this build-up put down, you know, and again, I don't think there was, they were only repeating what their parents did with them. Um, but the only time I ever witnessed unrestrained praise and acceptance was when they would listen to a preacher or listen to a tape as it was then, a cassette tape, or be in church and it was always wow, 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 wow. There was none. He preached pretty well, but he needs to be really careful that he doesn't get proud. It was also, oh, wasn't, you know, God was in that. Oh, it was, it was just amazing. It was so I've had to question myself whether I found myself in ministry because that was the only arena that I witnessed unrestrained acceptance and praise. Now, I don't think it is, but I've had to ask the question because of, like I say, this opposite side of imposed ideals and what I call third-party sculpting, somebody else shaping your life to what they think your life should be and serving another's ego. So... As a Christian parent, you had to be careful because you could have been serving your ego by how you dealt with your kids because you were wanting people to see that you had great kids, which meant you were a great parent, which meant you were serving God. That was not serving the kids, that was serving your own ego. And we've probably done a little bit of that, you know, in history. So I'm trying to show the two sides because some of you will say, but I felt controlled, dominated, etc. in that. But the point is, in both of these, we embrace that and we become the hero of the journey. So we, we deal with it. We deal with it. And we feel like heroes. Now, somewhere along there, which let's call it here, somewhere along there, we encounter a challenge to what I call true identity. We start to internally and externally ask some questions about who am I? What does all this mean? What's it about? And uh, I came to this late because I was pretty compliant with this process and I was enjoying the heroic journey. But when you do come to it, Whatever age it is you come to it, it's a very shocking moment because all of a sudden you, were, you go from, you were just being, you were just being you, and then all of a sudden there's all this stuff going on inside. What, what does all this mean? What's all this about? And you, you start to recognize things and, and see things and, and, and there's the question about who really am I and how do I fit and, and why? Now... You could say that very often that probably the average time that occurs is about 30, which, which I find interesting because it, it didn't really happen to me at 30. I was still, I was still on my heroic journey at 30. Um, Chris was younger, I mean, she, she, 
But she was more under the second area of people I talked about, the control, dominated, imposed ideals. And so her need to, to find something else was potentially greater than mine, but, but I needed to find it as well. What, what's interesting, I find, is that the age that the Bible records Jesus being baptised in the Jordan and hearing his father say, you're my son, I love you, I'm pleased with you, or in other words, the age at which Jesus wrestled and found the true identity was at 30 years of age at the River Jordan. And um, it's interesting because the Bible narrative says David was 30 years of age when he became king and Solomon was 30 years of age. And you've got all these 30 years old, which is really, it's just pointing us that there is a time in life where where our true identity becomes challenged. And this is part of the spiritual journey. If you don't deal with that, if you ignore that, here's what happens. Instead of making this turn, you, you go straight on. And you miss the turn. Now, let, let me talk about that a little bit um, on the top. Because when we get to this, this place here, this, this issue of true identity, the encounter, that question of true identity... Sometimes it's fully conscious and sometimes can be verbalised, sometimes not. But, but it begins to trigger what, what Raw calls the, uh, an appropriate sense of one's boundaries. In other words, you start going from some of the fantasy of the hero, heroic journey into the reality of the true journey. What you hoped would happen to what looks likely to happen and what probably might happen. Now, uh, some of us reject that, and so we find, we find ways to drug ourselves. And I'm not going to be too pointed or too critical, but I know all the methods, because I've been around a long time, in church that we use to drug ourselves so that we don't have to face that actual challenge. That the challenge of, of, of understanding a sense of boundaries and realizing that they are very real and they're not wrong and it's not the devil, it's just our humanity and its life and its people and we start to come to an awareness of those things which we must not ignore and you must not ignore and I'm not asking you to ignore those things, I'm saying you embrace them, you say yes but it makes me suffer, exactly, that's the point. It makes you suffer. But in learning to embrace that, something is going to happen in you which transforms you as a person, okay? So some carry on in their, in their merry, merry way. Um, and uh, in the, it's, it's an insistence on keeping your self-assessment intact regardless of the signs. And uh, here's what you're going to become. Okay, I'll put it as kindly as I can. That's the way to becoming an old fool. And uh, hopefully I won't be, hopefully I'm resisting it, but I think there are people who are, and I think there are people who are on the journey to being an old fool, because you won't make the turn when you begin to get an awareness of the truth about yourself and about life. So some carry on, on on this merry way, insistent on keeping their self-assessment intact regardless of the signs. They are set to become old fools. They just don't get it and resist any attempt to interrupt their false self-fantasy, all the evidence of life and the invitation to a better way. They are usually shallow while thinking themselves deep. 
Now stop it because I, I'm, I can translate thoughts into real names and people, so stop it, right? Usually shallow while thinking themselves deep. Now, now, so that's, that's this one, okay? You become an old fool. Now, those who make the turn find themselves on something that, that, that we're going to give it a name. Um, we're going to call it uh, this plateau, okay? Now, it might be slightly curved. I don't know. Maybe it's not totally flat, but just for illustration's sake, we find ourselves in this plateau of life. And um, uh, this, this, we're going to put something on here to kind of try and label this the crisis we're going to call it the crisis of limitation it's the it's the part of life where you have to reassess just about everything because you start to encounter this thing called limitations now you can call it a midlife crisis if you like Part of what psychology understands is a midlife crisis is to do with this crisis of limitation. Suddenly you're understanding your own limitations. Even physically, you start to be aware of your own mortality, which was never an issue down here. We're all going to live forever. It's miles away till all this is gone. And then you start to encounter, even on a natural level, the sense of your own mortality. But actually it runs much deeper than that, because we become confronted with our own limitations. The things we haven't achieved, the things we can't achieve, the things we are not, the things we're not likely to be, the things other people aren't, the things other people are not likely to be, the things that your job prospects are not likely to emerge to, the things that, all of those things that your kids might not be turning out as you thought and, and you can't do anything about it and suddenly you have a crisis of limitation which begins to take away the superhero and brings you more to a sense of having to embrace your humanity. The greatest key to successful spirituality is the embracing of your humanity. If you do not embrace your humanity, you will not grow and increase in your spirituality because we live our lives in humanity. So in this arena, we are confronted with our own limitations. And it's scary, I hate it, you know. Um, we're confronted with paradox and mystery. Now, of course, paradox is when, when a thing isn't what you thought it was supposed to be, right? It's something else, that's a paradox. And, and of course, mystery, the whole thing of you actually can't control some things. It's a time of inner loss, of meaning, a, a time of inner loss of meaning, sometimes accompanied by feelings of failure. And depending how you're wired, this is the time when you start to think, my life's a failure. Everything I've ever done. This is the time. But actually, and you say, and that makes you suffer. But he learned obedience by the things which he suffered and became perfected or complete or whole, becoming something. This is not your enemy. This is your friend of the journey of spirituality. If you don't face this, you're going to become an old fool. It's the sense of one's world falling apart. It's when our perceived virtues don't usually seem to work anymore. And that's, that's a horrible thing when you face 
you know, what you thought were your virtues that were working just don't seem to work anymore. And this, this is a good one for some of you. People not being what you want them to be and things not doing what you want them to do. This is where you become aware of that. It's the crisis of limitations, okay? It's where old ways fail us. Of course, the dumb thing is, and we've got a little bit on this in a moment, where we will still insist often in, in trying to do the old things to get the new results. But, but there has to come a point where the old ways fail you. I thank God for my heritage, but I reached a point where the old ways failed me. Where a lot of what was gained on the heroic journey when I made the turn to true identity found that that those things were in many ways a fantasy and not a reality. And I've had learned to embrace what happens. Old ways fail us, so we have to have new ways. Often the trigger for multiple attempts to regain power and control. So this is often the trigger that what we try to do is regain power. I'm out of control. I've lost control. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I have no power. So, so we try to fix this by regaining control and reasserting our power. And it doesn't work. And the only person that gets damaged is you because you didn't embrace the process that the suffering was doing in you. You tried to get rid of the suffering. It's um, the sense of loss and the apportioning of blame. And this crisis of limitation is going to do one of two things in you. It's either the beginning of humility or it's the beginning of bitterness, one or the other, okay? In this crisis, when you recognize all those limitations that are in place, it's either the beginning of humility or the beginning of bitterness, now, whichever of these two you engage will determine the next major shift in direction because one of these carries straight on. The crisis of limitations, if you don't address this properly, here's where it brings you to. It brings you to, on that straight line, if you don't get off there at the next turn, which is here, it brings you to, let me see if I spell this right, embittered. Is that right? Embittered. Is that the right spelling? It brings you to the embittered journey. Now, of course, what we're going to look at here is this is the stage of descent, not the stage of ascent. Now, if you know the slightest thing about spirituality, you will know that the way up is the way down. And not only has Christianity understood this, but just about every other religion in the world has understood the way up is the way down. There has to come a point where in all of this we learn that the way up is the way down. Of course, that's where humility comes in. I'll talk about that in, in just a moment briefly. But if we don't make this next turn here um, onto, onto, I'm going to call this, wisdom journey, okay? If we don't make the next turn, so we're meant to go heroic journey, discovery of true identity, crisis of limitation, and when we learn to wrestle and appreciate that correctly, it takes us on a downward trend, which is the wisdom journey, but that doesn't mean down in the sense of loss, it means down in the sense of 
of, of wisdom that brings us to a conclusion of where we are supposed to be. So in this embittered journey, here's what happens. Confrontation occurs, but enlightenment is refused. This is very important. Confrontation occurs, whether it's just the process of life or people or things, confrontation occurs, but enlightenment is refused. We don't let this process enlighten us. And I like this, this phrase, wounds have not been allowed to become sacred. It's, it's an interesting thought. We could talk a little bit about Christ and Christ's particular physical sufferings at the cross. But this idea of wounds becoming sacred is very important. What it means is, is that those wounds can kill you, as with the crucifixion of Jesus. Those wounds can kill you. But when those wounds become sacred, i.e. you embrace those wounds as part of a journey to something else, then in the sacredness of those wounds you find healing and resurrection. The wounds of Jesus weren't wounds of bitterness against those who were wounding him. He received those and he said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. So he made the wounds sacred wounds and because the wounds became sacred, the wounds not only brought healing to him but released healing to the world. We have to learn to make our wounds sacred. Now, what tends to happen here on the embittered journey is you carry on all your life still looking for someone or something to blame and you become negative, negative and cynical. How many of you know some people like that? And it might be you, it might be yourself. We become negative and cynical because we didn't make the turn, we got on the embittered journey. Okay, so, to, to bring our last bit through on here. Um, <clears throat> the, the alternative to that is that the beginnings of humility rather than the beginnings of bitterness mark a downward turn, which is the stage of descent, and we're going to call that wisdom journey. And here's what wisdom journey is when I stop trying to control what can't be controlled. And when I stop trying to fix what can't be fixed. When you've come to that place, you have learned obedience because you said, I can't control it, I can't fix it, but I know that I'm a son, but I'm not just a son, now I am being made complete as a son. Something is happening in me which begins to be a perfecting a wholeness, a, a settling. Now, of course, unless you make wisdom's journey, you can never understand how taking that direction would ever solve anything because you think, I have to fix it, I have to control it. Wisdom's journey says, I can't fix it, I can't control it, and it's okay. Now, life has a strange way of bringing into our circle things then that we maybe wouldn't have noticed or wouldn't have even made room for, which I call it the divine. It's the divine presence in that spirituality that somehow comes and enshrouds us because we took that place. So it's when I stop trying to control what can't be controlled and stop trying to fix what can't be fixed. Um, this wisdom journey is often punctuated with painful insights and the need for major surgery. 
In the same way that as you get older, there can often be very painful insights and need for major surgery, um, that is also the case on wisdom's journey. And hence the reason why I'm very keen that we continue to, to teach and learn and grow together, because sometimes we do need major surgery. Um, I've needed major surgery. I don't think I've really got out of the operating room very much in the last five years. Chris has needed loads. Major surgery. So remember, major surgery is about removing things and restoring things and fixing things and replacing things and, and having transplants. That, that's what all that is about. You know, having new hips and new knees because we're trying to fix something that is decaying and rotted that somebody needs to come into that and do major surgery. Now, of course, in the context of wisdom journey, it's the issue of we need taking out of us all the images and thoughts and impressions and concepts about God and the divine that we inherited through here that then we struggled within the crisis of limitation that now have to go in order to make room for life to come. Um, the God that I know now in one sense is the same God I knew when I was 11 but in another sense, it isn't. I mean, it's the same kind divine being that was there for me, but how I understand him now and how I know him now and how I experience what he is now is vastly and massively different. And a lot of it because if you negotiate this crisis of limitation, it brings you to a different place. And, and I, I believe, well, let me just share just a little one-minute story. Um, I use um, Olive Tree Bible Programme on my bits of whatever. Um, and they occasionally send articles through. You click on the article. I read one today, it's terrible. It was all about, the question was, what is the fear of God? And then it goes into launching, you know, God is, God is love, God is kind, but God is also just, and God is also righteous, and God hates sin, and God must deal with sin, and it's like, by the time you'd finished, you had this God, if you please him, as Chris puts it this way, and I like this phraseology, I think it's great, that for years she felt saved, but not safe. I think that's great terminology, saved, but not safe. You know, you knew that in the terms of how we understood it, you were saved by grace, but it was because God killed Jesus in your place, so you were saved, but you weren't safe because God is just, because God is righteous, because God is jealous, you know, because God has vengeance. So you were never quite safe, although you were saved. <clears throat> and um, so I read through all this stuff, and, and my conclusion was this, and I, I put a little post out on Facebook about it, that what I read about, about um, you know, what is the fear of God, I could have I could have applied to any single God, any single deity that has ever existed throughout history right up to the present time. And I, and I put, I'm sorry, but this is not the Abba of Jesus. If it is, then the Abba of Jesus, the Father of Jesus, is no different to any pagan God that we ever talked about. So on this, on this journey, that's where, if we're not careful, we carry those things through, we don't deal with them, when we actually do need major surgery to get them out of our, out of our defective understanding. 
Uh, okay, wisdom journey. It needs spiritual guidance because rules no longer work in their old form. And we may not think it, but, but a lot of what, how we have shaped spirituality has been on the basis of rules. You keep the rules, you tick the boxes, that means you're this, 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 or this. Um, and uh, that's not helpful. And when we get to this place, we, we need spiritual guidance because now the problem is, if I don't have the rules, if I don't have boxes to tick, if it's not do this and get that and don't do this and you won't get that, where do I go from here? That's where we have spiritual guidance. That's why I'm here to try and share the journey and walk and why it's good for us to talk and teach. So, uh, okay, it's the realisation of how little we can control and how much we must accept. It's the painful redefining of, redefining of victory and success. All the things that we thought were victory and success and all the things that we thought were failure, we have to redefine in wisdom's journey. What does success look like? It's about redefining the truth of Christ. And, and by that I mean what true salvation looks like. You cannot comply with the system because to do so, and this is part of wisdom's journey, you can't comply with the, with the system because to do so would be fake. As I've told you, there's some things I can't do. I'd like to do because I know they'd work, but I can't do it because I'd be fake. It's wisdom's journey. Some people don't seem to have a problem with that. And it's about letting go. It's about repenting of the sin of certitude which is not biblical. Certitude is when you have to be certain about everything, where there's no mystery, there's no paradox, there's no nothing. Well, I suggest whoever it is who's taking you out of certitude and paradox, uh, and uh, is taking you out of paradox and mystery and into certitude is probably not the God of Jesus. It's about let, letting go, repenting of the sin of certitude. It's about trust, it's about surrender, it's about what Chris talked about, um, week before last, that, that Greek word metanoia, that we translators repent, which is a bad translation because, as Chris said, repent, pent is a word that is substituted for penance. So we've made repent be a, be a, a sorry thing. A, 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 what was the word you used there? Uh, yeah, to do penance. For when actually repent doesn't mean that, it means a change of mind. It's, it's the Romans 12, 3, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And all of that is what's going on here in Wisdom's Journey. So I don't want to go on too long, so I'm going to finish this off. Um, what? Nah, nah. Hold the bus. Getting there. What this does, it, it brings one to a place of holy wholeness. Not holy sinlessness, not holy don't do that but others do it. It brings you to a place of holy wholeness. It's wholeness that's holy to God. When we become complete, when we having been made whole become the author of something, we become the author of something. So it's about being fully settled and at peace as God's beloved son being at peace with self, the world, and the Father in that wholeness. It's about being able to hold together the paradoxes because God's done it in you, and you're not now struggling with all that. It's about receiving as a little child without being a little child. 
And, and it's about understanding that what Jesus meant by entering the kingdom of heaven, because remember he said, unless you enter the kingdom of heaven as a little child, you won't be able to enter therein. It's about knowing that what Jesus meant by entering the kingdom of heaven... How unnecessary was it? It's about... It's about um, uh, let me get back to this. Okay, it's about what Jesus meant by entering the kingdom of heaven was living life out of a transformed consciousness. Now, here's the problem. While ever we hold salvation to be simply having one's sins forgiven and going to heaven, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Some of you don't get that, but while ever you hold salvation to be simply having one's sins forgiven and going to heaven, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Entering the kingdom of heaven is about living life out of a transformed consciousness. It's a transformation on the inside that gives us the consciousness of the wisdom journey that allows us to become whole and complete in our spirituality. It's learning that humility is the accepting of an accurate assessment of oneself. So this humility that we're talking about that comes here has got nothing to do with being self-effacing and and, you know, self-condemning and all. That, that is not the humility. The humility that comes on this journey is the humility of accepting an accurate assessment of oneself and being okay with it. Because that's where we always struggled in our spiritual journey. Take an assessment of ourselves and we're not okay with it. But when you take an accurate assessment of yourself and you're okay with it, because you learn in obedience as you embrace all of that because you've made this crisis of limitation. Now that wisdom allows you to be at peace with God, at peace with yourself, and at peace with the world. And as the French would say, bonne journée. Oh, That's it. 